Hi, this is Mark C. Crowley, and welcome to the Lead from the Heart podcast. For the past eight years, my guest today has had the enviable opportunity of sitting down with prominent chief executives and asking them to share their greatest insights into management and leadership. And as the writer of the highly popular Corner Office column in the New York Times, Adam Bryant interviewed 525 top executives over nearly eight years, all along the way distilling an understanding of what leadership practices prove to be the most effective in motivating human performance in the workplace and which ones end up harming people in engagement and organizational success. So I'm very excited to have Adam on the show and hearing how the most effective managers he interviewed you know, actually think and feel and act. And I'm also anxious to learn if some of these CEOs chose to bring some heart into how they manage and lead, and we're about to find that out too. Adam, by the way, is the author of two New York Times bestselling books, The Corner Office, Indispensable and Unexpected Lessons from CEOs on How to Lead and Succeed, and Quick and Nimble, Lessons from Leading CEOs on How to Create a Culture of Innovation. He's coming to us from New York City. Adam Bryant, welcome, and thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Mark. I'm thrilled. I want to get started here. And my first question for you is, I, I will say that this idea of interviewing CEOs from all kinds of industries in reading your column over the years, it always struck me as being this really clever way of gaining leadership insight. So tell us what influenced you to write this column and what kept you interested for so many years. Sure. Uh, it's a pretty simple backstory. So I was a business reporter at the New York Times for many years, covered a lot of different industries, interviewed a lot of CEOs. And what dawned on me, it sort of sounds obvious to say it now, but I realized that CEOs in the business press are pretty much always interviewed as strategists. If you look at most Q&As with CEOs and boil them down, they're basically two questions. What's your growth plan? And what about the competitive landscape? It's almost like they're interviewed like football coaches. And that's fine. I enjoyed those conversations. There's a lot of readership interest in them. But I just found the more time I spent with CEOs, the more I just wanted to ask them really simple questions like, how do you do what you do? And then I became a manager myself about a dozen years ago and discovered firsthand the joys and challenges of managing people. And that made me want to ask CEOs, how did you learn to do what you do? Because I do find in our society, people have this funny notion of CEOs. They tend to assume they were born leaders from the time they were in diapers. They knew exactly how to do this. And I figured, well, there's got to be a learning curve there. So I rolled all of that up into a very simple what if, which is what if I sat down with CEOs and literally never asked them a single question about their company? And instead, we just talked about leadership lessons they've learned over the course of their lives, how they lead inside their company rather than how they lead in their industry and also you know how they hire what qualities they look for what questions they ask and what career and life advice they give to new college grads so that was the initial idea and that was more than 500 interviews ago did you find that they were very excited about transitioning away from traditional topics to talk about this they really were um, i came to appreciate that i think if you're a ceo you do spend most of your day giving, you know, slightly different versions of the same speech about the strategy, mm -hmm. whether you're talking to investors or customers or employees. And setting strategy is a small part of a CEO's job. Their full-time job, their real 24-7 job, is creating culture and building teams and making sure everybody's engaged. And 
generally nobody asks them about those things. So they're generally super eager to have these conversations and really lit up when you start asking them some of these things. That was something I was fairly interested in hearing from you. So thank you. The idea that they're excited and want to talk about this because you wonder if all the conversations they're having relate to just the financial performance of the organization, then that means that they're sort of absorbed in that and not really focused on just what you described, the cultural aspects of managing a company. So we're going to dig into this in a little while here, but you've done an incredible number of interviews, 525 CEOs. So at what point did you start to identify a trend in what the really successful leaders were doing? And I think it's interesting that you were managing people at the same time, so you can sort of you know, bounce off, that sounds legitimate, that doesn't sound legitimate. So at what point did you start to pick up a scent on the CEOs whose philosophies were really good and which ones were a misfit for the times? Sure. I mean, from the earliest interviews, I was playing this kind of running dinner party game with myself, if you will, just sort of like, what is it about these people that explains why they get to the corner office. And, and I think to me, that is a slightly more specific question than the question people usually ask, because most people ask, what's the secret to success? And the answer is always some version of hard work and perseverance, right? But I was trying to understand what separates these people from just one or two levels down. And, you know, the thing about CEOs in our society, I mean, most of that is conveyed like in movies, popular culture, the cover of business magazines, you know, and we all know what those glossy magazine shots look like, you know, the CEO, their arms folded across their chest and they project this air of like, I can see around corners, I can see the future, I have all the answers. And really from early on, I just started understanding that their real added value is their ability to ask smart questions inside their organization. Because, you know, for the outside marketplace, you need to project that confidence they have of the answers. But your role inside the company and figuring out where the industry is going, it's really just this habit of mind. They were just super curious people. Um, and not just about business, but just generally interested in, in all aspects of life. How do you know that? Just because... I'd spend 75 minutes with them and you can see it in their eyes. You can, you talk to somebody for 75 minutes and you can see how their brain works. And a lot of these people are super smart. They've got a lot of experience and frankly, a lot of wisdom. And when you ask, well, what is, to me, what is wisdom? It's just, a lot of it is just sort of sifting your experiences and almost, if you use the metaphor of like a, a wet towel that, you know, a towel that absorbs all the experience. And then what do you do with that? And my sense of these people is they take that towel and they just keep wringing it for every last drop they can of insight and lessons learned from what they've done. And when you also have to remember, CEOs have this incredible vantage point. So they get this kind of flywheel effect of experience because they have more than just their firsthand experience. They see what it takes for other people to succeed, the people they're managing. And they have all these little experiments like, okay, there's there's 10 different teams here. Why are some teams succeeding more than others? Why are other teams failing? So they just have this rare vantage point to, I think, really understand life and what motivates people and the keys to success. Well, not everybody listening to this is a CEO or aspires to CEO level, but they nevertheless want to be great leaders. So this idea of digging deep 
Can you explain how they actually did this? In other words, can you give some guidance to our audience on how they might be able to exercise that skill at whatever level they're at in their organization? Sure. I think part of it is a little bit is getting in touch with our inner four and five-year-olds and just asking a lot of why questions. You know, the world presents itself to us, but it's just to always wonder, you know, why is it this way? How does this work? And to me, it's almost like building a muscle, just whatever situation you're in, to sort of look around and try and understand what are the drivers, what makes it work, how it can be made to work better. And I think that really manifests itself just when you're talking to people. I increasingly feel that real listening isn't happening a lot in our society anymore. I don't think our devices are helping and we're all so distracted. But I think being genuinely present when you're with other people and truly listening to them. I love that expression. It's more important to be interested than interesting. And I think that's really true. And just, I think that's really underestimated as important skill just in life in general, knowing how to listen to people, being authentically interested. And a big part of being authentically interested is asking interesting questions, right? So to me, it all feeds into it. And you can tell if somebody's actually listening to you and if they're really interested or, you know, I heard this great expression that a lot of conversations are just serial monologues. And I think that's true. You know, sometimes you're talking to somebody, you can tell they're just waiting for you to finish so they can tell you what they're thinking. It's such a fantastic point to make about the technology. And I think there's a lot of evidence that we see it in others. In other words, we tend to think that people we're interacting with aren't taking the time to listen deeply and to ask probing questions and sort of superficial conversations. But the evidence is pretty clear that we're all pretty much doing the same thing and devices are distracting us so much that we're just sort of in this frenzy relative to our ability to focus. So I'm really glad you mentioned that. And I think that's something that everybody can take away. We're going to be talking a lot about the leadership qualities you came to most admire, but I'm pretty intrigued on some of the interviews you had where CEOs approach managing, you know, that made you sort of bristle, where you heard ideas, where you just went, man, how did you get to this level? And you sort of alluded to this, but I'm wondering whether all CEOs have leadership figured out. So is there a common denominator that they've really mastered leadership or did you get a sense that some of these people are really struggling in their level? I don't think anybody ever masters leadership and everybody leads differently, but I think it starts with a few things. I mean, people talk about authentic leadership and that's you know become a bit of a buzz phrase, but to me, what it means is that you have to embody your stated values and you have to live them. There can't be any gap between what you say are the stated values of your leadership style, the culture, a company, and who you are as a person. Because if there is a gap, those tiny cracks at the leadership level become almost like a chasm as they move down the organization. So when I was interviewing CEOs about culture and their leadership philosophy, I never heard the same answer, right? Everybody constructs different frameworks for values and how they lead. And so I would listen to them, but then what I was trying to do is just sort of turn them around and inside out and make sure that there was kind of a implicit integrity to them, that it all held together and made sense and that there were no cracks in the seams. And what was intriguing to me is that as long as it made sense, where you listen to them and then you ask for them some examples and it's like, okay, that makes sense. In some ways, I kind of liken it to sports. I mean, as human beings, we're pretty adaptable. And when we go into a new workplace, I think it's like 
entering an arena to play a new sport. You go into a new workplace and in terms of culture and values, whether it's conscious or subconscious, you're trying to figure out, like, what are the rules of this game? Like, how do people work with each other? What are the things that are tolerated and encouraged and what's going to get you in trouble? You know, why is the ref going to throw a penalty flag? And so as long as the system makes sense, I mean, I was intrigued. There are some people I interviewed on Wall Street who, frankly, you know, they had a pretty cut and dried, like black and white, pure meritocracy. Look, I care about you as a person, but that's not going to factor into compensation decisions. And this is a pure meritocracy. And some of the reactions from the interviews I did on social media was pretty polarizing. You know, some people thought the CEO was over the top tough guy and other people said, I love this guy's philosophy. And as long as it makes sense and as long as the leadership philosophy is consistently applied, and to me, that's the key thing, that as long as you say, okay, these are the rules and we're going to apply them consistently, I think people can adapt. And frankly, if they don't like the rules, they can go work someplace else. I think when leadership gets into trouble and when cultures get into trouble is when people say these are the rules and then there's no refs on the field, right? Nobody's throwing penalty flags. So people are getting away with behavior that directly contradicts the stated values and sometimes getting promoted. And I think that then brings out the worst in people and makes them cynical. And that's when the politics start. I think your insight that you can have different kinds of cultures and those can still succeed where one may be very caring and another one is a very direct meritocracy as you described it, those can equally succeed or can they? So my question is, if you were to create an organization you know, as a startup and you had, let's just say a thousand employees, so it's not 10, it's a reasonably sized company. Did you leave there saying, if I ever did that, this would be the kind of culture that I would create. So would it be the meritocracy or would it be something different? Meritocracy to me sort of gets at the idea of fairness. So whatever the comp system is or the incentives that it has to be applied fairly. If people get the sense that the leaders play favorites and things like that and the, the pre-meetings, the post-meetings, there's all these games that can be played to get ahead. I think that makes people crazy. I, I do think you know, and I've spent a lot of time thinking about this, the, the key attributes of successful teams, and the same is true of larger organizations, you have to have a clear plan for what the strategy is, and you have to have an external scoreboard to measure progress, and so everybody knows what success is, because you have to have that external scoreboard, because if you don't, people will keep scoreboards in their own head. And so if everybody's keeping a different scoreboard of what success looks like, that leads to problems. Well, how well do you think organizations or specifically CEOs are doing as leaders in not just communicating values and what's important, and this is what our culture is, but actually doing the work to define them? Well, I think a lot of companies go through the exercise of codifying their values, right? So there's the strategy part, which I just described, has to be simple, external scoreboard. With the values, a couple of observations. One is that a lot of companies, when they go through the exercise, they frankly have lists that are too long. And I know this because I've asked every single CEO, what are your values? And they say, well, we have seven or we have eight or we have six. And 85% of the time or more, they cannot remember what their own values are, which is pretty shocking, right? Because if the CEO can't remember their own values, how do they expect their employees to? 
And we know this from neuroscience. Most people can't remember more than three things day to day, maybe four, or you've got to have an acronym and it still can't be too long even with an acronym or an advertising jingle, right? I still know the seven ingredients in a Big Mac because of the advertising jingle. But when it comes to cultural values, I generally find like three is the right number. And some other patterns that I've seen is people start, they think that when it comes time to draw up lists of values, that they have to somehow encompass all possible human behavior, good and bad, Mm -hmm. in the list. So they start out with 40 and then cut it to 20 and then cut it to 10. And they think, boy, we really boiled this down. And that's not the way it works. The way it works is to focus on a few things that the leader embodies that makes sense. And that usually takes care of stuff because it becomes a focal point. The leader has to live those values every day. And I thought a lot about something a CEO told me. He said, at the end of the day, culture is not defined so much by the values. Culture is defined by who gets promoted and who gets fired. And well, I, don't, don't I, you think that there's, obviously, it's, it's a huge flaw if your CEO has values that define the culture and he can't come up with them when asked, right? So yeah. that, that also means that they're not using those values as filters for their decisions, Right. So in other words, like you're saying, who gets promoted, if you have established values and you can't recall what they are, you're going to universally promote people who are getting numbers who may not necessarily embody the values that the company has told all the employees were most important in terms of getting promotions and getting valued and, you know, sort of aligning to the to the company's mission. Yeah. And that makes people cynical, because if if you have the posters on the conference room wall and the laminated wallet cards that state the values. And yet you see people behaving in ways that directly contradict the values and getting promoted. That makes people cynical. I think the best companies, they have a short list and they reinforce those values at every step in the process. They use them for hiring. They use them for firing. They hand out quarterly and annual rewards that reinforce the values. They look for stories that bring those values to life. It's just got to be one of those things that it constantly reinforced. This is something a CEO told me, and I really like the metaphor. He said, culture is like a religion. And when you think about that, I mean, a big part of religion is saying to people, these are the behaviors we encourage, and these are the behaviors that we won't tolerate. And ideally, I think a lot of corporate cultures are like that. It's just what you do with them. I mean, how do you manifest that encouragement and lack of tolerance for them. And that a lot of comes back to this idea of like promoting and firing, because those are very clear signals to everybody who's in the tribe, if you will, of, you know, how to get ahead and what will get you kicked out of the tribe. Mm -hmm. People study those moments very carefully. So what stands out before we get into sort of the discussions of who's doing things really, really well, what are some of the bad beliefs and practices that you saw were still being applied? In other words, anything that you see that's sort of a holdover from historical thinking that you think no longer works today or shouldn't be employed any longer? Yeah, I I would say, you know, I've got a list of do's, but the, the don't list is, I think a lot of companies get into trouble when they have too many priorities, too many strategies. These are 10 priorities for the year. I I believe in the Jim Collins saying, if you have more than three priorities, you don't have priorities. Mm -hmm. 
if you have too many values and you don't live by them, I think that can be really damaging for culture. If you don't treat people with a baseline level of respect when they come in, you know, the worst thing that you can do to somebody is call them out in a meeting in front of their colleagues. I mean, that creates very real scar tissue and that can be terrible for culture. Not holding people accountable, you have to treat employees like a team, not a family. Everybody's got a role and they've got to be held accountable. A lot of companies, a lot of managers go out of their way to avoid conversations around performance. And I think the best companies just make it part of the rhythm of working with people and being able to have those conversations without them being a super big deal. And the last point I'll add, and I've just seen this myself, it's come up a lot in my interviews with CEOs, is just email is such a problem as a communication tool. There are so many disagreements and misunderstandings that happen over email because you don't have that tone or context and things get lost in translation. What's the best alternative then? You know, there's this thing called the phone. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, I've talked to people at very senior levels who've directed their employees, you know, their direct reports to just text them for all communications, which to me just seems completely mindless. It's doubling down on the communication weakness that email has. You're just sending people quick messages and people are left to their own, no pun intended, devices to kind of figure out what, what you mean by that. So I agree with you. One question I have has to do with an article that I just read that you wrote where you interviewed a CEO and and he was saying very strongly that, you know, I recognize my people two or three times a year and it's going to have to be something spectacular in order to get recognized. And, you know, I'll, I'll just, you know, show you my cards. I think that's just patently absurd. But I wonder what your thoughts are. Again, it goes back to this idea. I think as long as you're super clear up front about what the culture is and why, people can say, all right, they can decide for themselves whether that makes sense. And Austin McCord's philosophy of only saying good job a few times a year, it's not that he doesn't give any feedback. His point is that he doesn't think that's actionable. And what he tries to live as a leader and model for his employees is that literally everything in your life, you could do better. And just to have that sort of growth mindset. And so it's not that he doesn't give feedback. It's, hey, you know, this is how it could be done better. So his idea is that we do live in this time where we kind of measure our our life by the number of likes we get on social media. And he said, ultimately, employees don't want that. A lot of people want to get better. So if you approach people like, I'm trying to get better, we're all trying to get better, that's the culture of the company. Let's talk specifically about what you could have done to make this better. As long as that's applied consistently, I think people can get that. Again, as human beings, I think we're adaptable to different sports, if you will. I put that in the air quotes. Just make it, tell me what the rules are and tell me they'll be applied evenly. Because if that CEO said, I only hand out three good jobs a year, and then there's like two people who five times a day he's saying good job to, that's going to really create a problem for the culture. So you have to be consistent. 
I appreciate the consistency and I totally agree with what you're talking about. It goes back to what you were saying earlier about different kinds of cultures can all be successful as long as you're consistent and people know what the rules are. It does strike me, though, holding the bar so high in terms of when people get recognized that there are moments where people are wondering, you know, does he even realize how hard I'm working and how how many successes I'm having here if he's just acknowledging the very best ones? So do you have a sense that most of the people alive today would be better off getting? And, and when you mentioned Facebook and the likes, obviously that sort of comes an exaggeration where people are just sitting around waiting for somebody to like something by post it. This is very different in the sense that somebody could be working really hard on a project and the boss isn't acknowledging the progress that's been made. He's waiting till the very end. So I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. Well, I think most people want some kind of feedback. They want to be acknowledged. They want people to understand how hard they're working. And, you know, I haven't stood by the side of Austin as he engages with all his employees, but he's clearly had some success in what he does. And I think a lot of people want to feel like they're building new muscles and getting better at their jobs, becoming more promotable becoming more marketable out there in the job market. You know, you imagine an employee who, you know, somebody says to them all day long, this is a great job without giving them feedback on how to get better. And I've actually seen this myself and heard from some people over the years, like they think everything I do is great, but, and that was nice at first, but it's like, I know I could be doing better. So if you're creating a choice of between two extremes, I would rather work for somebody who was engaged in what I do, cared for me as, as a human being insofar as they wanted me to grow and get better. I would rather have that than somebody just saying, hey, great job, Adam. Yeah, but I don't think that's what we're talking about in the sense of extremes. We're really talking about what's a better practice for most people. And I also think that when you're dealing at a very senior level, that the people that are subordinate direct reports, if you will, to a CEO have already figured out how to congratulate themselves and they know when they're doing good work and they, they probably don't need you know as much as that. But as you yeah. get into the lower levels, what I've discovered is that doesn't work as well. That people right. really need you know a sense that you're pleased with what I'm doing, I'm going in the right direction, even if they're growing, even if they're trying to work on their career, they still day to day wanna know, I'm doing well, I'm meeting expectations, people are pleased with what I'm doing. And so I think from a CEO to sort of a middle manager or a line manager position, my sense is that it's a mistake to, to hold it back. And so senior level, I get it, but at a more junior level, it seems like a weakness. Yeah, and, and look, we could talk about this through dinner. I, <laughs> I, I think one of the interesting insights for me in doing more than 500 of these interviews is that I came to appreciate that each interview was like a Rorschach test, like a class <laughs> ink blot. And a typical week, I would get an email from a reader saying, I've been reading this from this feature from the start. This was the best one yet. Ten minutes later, I'll run into a colleague in the cafeteria who will say, you know that guy this Sunday? I didn't like that guy. And to me, it was just this sort of weekly reminder of how people project a lot of their own stuff. 
right, on leaders. And everybody reacts very personally and very differently to different leaders, to different leadership styles. And I think for leaders at, at some level, that insight is almost freeing because you realize, look, not everybody's going to like you as a leader. And there's only so much you control. On the other hand, it also puts additional pressure on you to be self-aware and making sure that you, you're not making kind of rookie mistakes in the words you use, your body language, how you interact with people in meetings. The phrase I heard is that you are overread as a CEO. People look for hidden meaning in just how you're furrowing your brow at that particular moment. And I think that's a good insight too. I'm wondering if you noticed the proportion of male to women CEOs you interviewed, but did you notice any differences in terms of either their values, the differences in priorities? Is there any I, leadership I, differences between men and women? I, I did interview a lot of close to half. Um, when I started Corner Office, I was decided I was going to embrace diversity in every sense of the word, interview roughly half women, and also never ask the women any gender-specific questions. So I interviewed them as leaders who happen to be women as opposed to women leaders. Early on, I was looking for differences between men and women. But by the end of it, after the more than 500 interviews, I decided that there aren't any differences. And the differences are more to do with them as people and their backgrounds than it is with their gender. Mm -hmm. um, I think introvert versus extrovert is a huge difference in how you're going to lead. I think if you're creative versus analytical, are you more comfortable with chaos or process? Frankly, you know, how you grew up, your parents, did you grow up in a large family, a small family? To me, those are much more of poker tells of how you're likely to lead than whether you're a man or a woman. Because at the end of the day, I think leadership is leadership. You have to set a plan, a vision, a strategy. You have to create cultural guardrails. You know, you have to build a team. You have to make tough decisions. And to me, that's a, ultimately a sort of gender neutral task. Fantastic. So I have another question in, in terms of all the different people that you've interviewed, these 525, did one or two of them just stand out, just blow you away in terms of possessing some insight on leadership that you just thought everybody needs to know this and very few people do? I was impressed, I have to say, with pretty much all of them. And to me, it's not so much, you asked a really good question. The answer is not so much that they told me something I'd never heard before. The difference was that they nailed it in a very short sentence, some phenomenon that it kind of knew about intuitively, but they just came up with a sentence or a phrase that just crystallized and captured it. A couple of examples, Adam Nash, who was the CEO of Wealthfront, he talked about this external scoreboard and he said, you know, if you don't give people metrics for performance, smart people will make up their own. And I thought he just said what I kind of knew at a gut level, but you really think about that. And it's so true. A guy named Brett Wilson, who runs a company called Two Mogul, he came up with this phrase he calls the do to say ratios, which is what percentage of the things that you say you're going to do, do you always do? You know, you think about all the people you've worked with over your career. And again, just a really tight phrase that captures this kind of cool idea. And those are the moments where I fall out of my chair. I'm a sucker for a good insight. Well, but what you're a sucker for is clarity, which is this keeps coming up. Clarity around values, clarity around culture, clarity around communication. 
How do you advise managers and leaders to really cultivate those skills, uh, starting with just being thoughtful about how is somebody else perceiving how I'm saying this, writing this, texting this, emailing this? Yeah, and, and this is something that we're working with our clients now in my my current role at Merrick. I mean, we're dealing with a lot of senior leaders, and I think people get so busy and in their complicated businesses and industries where things are getting disrupted, and it's very hard to forget the basics, which is, you know, you've got to simplify the priority list. If you're trying to move the needle on 10 things, it's not going to happen. You've got to be super clear about relentlessly communicating the strategy and also talking about the why with your employees. I think a lot of leaders, they get into the rush of, okay, we just need to do this. We need to take that hill. And you've got to stop to make bring everybody along and that they understand why you're doing it. That's something that I've seen a lot. It's something that I hear from our mentors who are all former CEOs working with their clients. Just those basic reminders. And also this idea of like how you lead has to start with who you are as a person. And I think understanding leadership internally is as important as understanding it externally. And that comes from understanding yourself. Uh, to me, one of the most fascinating and intriguing questions that I asked the CEOs over the years were, you know, not just tell me about your parents, but then I would ask them, how have your parents influenced your leadership style? And it's amazing how many insights came out of that. And frankly, a lot of the CEOs said, nobody's ever asked me that before. And there was an in the moment realization on their part. It's like, oh, now I understand why I run meetings that way. And so I think that kind of internal journey of understanding yourself as a leader is just as important as the external things. That's very much one of the questions that I wanted to ask you because it was a consistently clever question that you included in there. And relative to my own experience, I know that in my upbringing had a profound impact in a very negative and ultimately a very positive way on shaping how I would lead. And so I think this notion of know thyself is probably the starting point for any leader. You can't be clear if you haven't done that work, right? Right. And I also think that people pick up on that. I mean, you can look somebody in the eye. I really believe that eye contact is kind of the broadband of communication. And as, as, as a leader, when you're up on stage in the all-hands meetings, like I truly believe that every cell and pore in your body has to be clear about who you are and what your values are because people can pick up on the slightest disconnect. One of the CEOs told me, you know, people tend to be very perceptive looking up at leaders and not so perceptive looking down at the people they manage. And so you have to be super clear on who you are. And to your point about adversity, I mean, I heard so many compelling stories over the years and you you know, you don't have to go through those periods of reversity to be an effective leader, but it sure is part of the backgrounds of a lot of people I interviewed. It, it reminds me of this saying, and what you said I think is very true, this notion that 95% of the worst thing that happens to you ends up being the best thing that happens to you. That's not true in all cases. Sometimes the worst thing that happens to you is just the worst thing that happens mm -hmm. to you. But in those tough moments, you know, if you can get up off the mat and years later you look back and say, well, if not for that, I wouldn't be the person I am today. I think inevitably, you know, my own experience, it happened very early. 
But, you know, we're all going to be faced with some, you know, whether it's a tragedy or a profound setback or a huge disappointment. And I just think it's inspiring to think that these CEOs, you know, the ones that spoke to you about their upbringing were willing to say, you know, I kind of figured it out. I kind of used this as a positive and figured out a way to make myself stronger and then leverage that to be a better leader. And I think that leads to greater compassion. It leads to greater empathy, which are, I think, essential today in terms of managing people. One of the things you just said about being able to feel into and read other people, particularly subordinates and how they're feeling and thinking that comes from that struggle, don't you think? I do. And what you just said touched on to me, one of the great mysteries of life, which is why is it when you take two people who go through similar tough circumstances and sometimes they're siblings, right? Same upbringing and they both get knocked down on the mat of life. And one of them says, I'm going to get up and the other one can't deal with it. Right. And sometimes that leads to drugs or alcohol or just kind of opting out of life a little bit. And to me, like, that is one of the endless mysteries. Like, why do some people get up off the mat and say, this isn't going to define me. I'm going to learn from this and rise above it. And other people don't or can't. If you had any advice for people who have gone through struggles that are either weighting them down from the past or they're going through them right now, what would your guidance be on being able to brush yourself off and get back in the game? I think partly trying to distance yourself and say, well, what are the lessons that came from that? And I'm also going to borrow a phrase I heard from one of the CEOs I interviewed. She had a very tough upbringing. And I was talking to her about this kind of broader philosophical question. And she said, you know, at the end of the day, your experience is really just source material. The literal reality of your life is source material. But as human beings, it is our choice for creating narratives with that source material. And so at the end of the day, we are kind of the stories we tell ourselves, right? Because we've all just made our own choices of what to make of our experiences. And a lot of that comes down to that attitude. It's like, you know, my parents got divorced when I was 14. It was a really tough experience for me. But looking back, it shaped me in good ways, ultimately. What do you think about sharing your personal stories with people? So in other words, is there any value in a leader? And this doesn't necessarily, it's not specific to CEO, but any leader just sharing their own background so that people have an appreciation of who they are. Is there any value in that? I think so, because I mean, it has to be done in the right way. And ideally, there is a purpose to sharing it, something that speaks to the values of the company. To me, that's kind of the right way to do it. Because again, you know, as a leader, people make so many assumptions about you. They project, they might have problem with authority figures in general. So I think it helps to humanize yourself Mm -hmm. because that leads to vulnerability, which builds trust. You know, you're a human being as well. And just sort of giving people different insights about you. And again, I just think it is tough for leaders because so many people project things onto them. And if you can kind of break those down and look, at the end of the day, everybody's struggling with something. Right. And so if you can humanize yourself, but in the context of the company's culture, I think it can be powerful. You articulated it really brilliantly because people ascribe things to you that aren't necessarily true. So the more you can give them an understanding of who you are, the less fantasy they're going to have and the more able they're 
they're able to deal with you on a very real basis instead of what they fantasize in their minds, right? Right. And ideally, I mean, it's one thing to sort of say it, but as human beings were wired, it just frankly, I think goes back to evolution. It's like, how do we remember things? We remember things through stories. And if you can say, look, this is important to me, not only as a human being, but as a leader. And here's why it's important to me, because I had this profound experience when I was younger. People go, okay, I can get that. And I can relate to that and I can get that and I can get on board with that. That makes sense to me. One of the things that I'm observing in our time already, Adam, is you're not a journalist in the sense that you get your data, you create an outline, you write an article, you publish your article and you move on to the next one. These have all influenced you. You have some really wonderful insights that could have come from having 525 different points of view for you to put through the colander and kind of figure out where's where's the gold and where's there not gold. So I'm just really impressed with the conclusions that you've come to so far. We're going to transition here for a second to something that I call the heartbeat round. It's a departure from this great discussion and we're going to come back. I've got more questions for you, but our listeners are really interested in getting to know you more personally. So I'm going to ask you 20 quick questions in rapid fire pace. And what I'd like you to do, Adam, is just, you know, give me the answer that instinctively comes to you for each question. So um, not to beat this too badly, but uh, that was unintended. Uh, In other words, answer each one in a heartbeat. So you ready? Yep. Okay. First one. Newspaper or magazine you never miss reading? New York Times. The quality you admire most in people? Uh, I'm going to take more than one. I would say curiosity, humility, and people who actually own their jobs and take full responsibility for them. Love it. The activity that makes you come alive. Teaching. Greatest book you've ever read. How about greatest? I'm a sucker for historical kind of whaling shipping stuff. Hmm. So it's like in the heart of the sea. I can't put those down. Interesting. Carrot or stick? Carrot, always. The best coach in professional or collegiate sports today? I don't know because coaches are a little bit like CEOs just because the stock price is up or just because you have a winning record. Like at some level, that means you're successful, but that's not how I define success. It's like, do you care about your players and employees and want them to get better and care about culture? So I can't answer your question. Okay. Your usual Starbucks order. Nothing special. Straight up coffee. Very good. Person today who's having the most impact on society? I don't know, but anybody who's trying to make a difference gets my applause. Awesome. Meditation practice, yes or no? No. Listening is my meditation. When I do interviews, that's the closest I get to meditation. (laughs) Because you have to clear your mind to truly listen. So I'm putting you down for a yes. Okay. World leader of any era. You most admire? I'd put Mandela at the top. Okay. Suit or business casual? Uh, Business casual, if given a choice. Quality that derails most leadership careers? Arrogance. Greatest piece of advice you've ever received? Probably in my role as an editor, the phrase is edit the person, not the words. It means focus on the person and you'll get good work out of not the actual work. And (laughs) that's true for journalism and editing. And I, I think it's true in life in general. Very cool. Favorite band or singer? Depending on the moment, but I'll put Martin Sexton at the top. Hmm. Company today whose leadership practices set the standards for others to follow? Cannot say. Don't know them well enough. And unfortunately, there's too many that look good from the outside. And then Mm -hmm. when you get inside, you discover problems. Mm -hmm. Quote that best captures your life philosophy. 
just leave the world a better place than you entered it. <laughs> awesome. Favorite podcast, of course, besides this one? I'd probably give my pal Michael Barbaro at the Times a shout out mm-hmm. the Daily. Mm-hmm. Skill improvement you're working on right now? Just focus and time management. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty decent at it, but you just realize that the ultimate limited resource is time. So it's just the endless challenge of making the most of the time you have. Great. Life lesson you wish you'd learned earlier? I don't know, probably just a little more patience. It's not that I was particularly impatient, but there is this paradox. It's like the older you get, I'm 55 now. It's weird as you start running out of runway, you become more patient than when you're younger and you have more runways. So. Hmm. Proudest accomplishment of your life? I would say, you know, aside from family, professionally, I'd probably say, you know, starting corner office, just the feedback that I've gotten over the years, um, just from all walks of life. And, you know, I've loved getting letters from professors at community colleges and they share the interviews with the students and just hearing the feedback that Mm. the students say, look, I always thought you had to be like a six foot four white male who went to Harvard to be a CEO and all these people that Adam's interviewing, they've got backgrounds like mine. And that's to me, probably the most heartening moment. Fantastic. Okay, Adam, those were really, really wonderful. And I have a few more of the big questions to ask you before you go. So in your first book, you described five personality traits that high performing leaders consistently possess. So I've got three questions related to that. The first one is, what are they and how did you discover them? Sure. I'll run through them really quickly. So passionate curiosity, just that relentless habit of mind, curious about everything. Battle hardened confidence, just this sense of like we've been through adversity. I don't know how we're going to win, but I know that we are going to win. And I think that inspires the people who work for you. Team smarts, which to me is like the organizational equivalent of street smarts. You just understand kind of the soft levers of power and how people work together. Again, the corporate equivalent of street smarts. Simple mindset. I talked about this before, just the ability to take complicated things and boil it down to you know a simple framework. And one that is right. It's one thing to simplify things, but you have to be right. It has to make sense. And the final quality is this fearlessness, which is different from recklessness. It's just that willingness to disrupt things, even when things are okay, because you know you can make them better. So are these traits that, in other words, you need them to be a CEO or are they the ones that get you to be a CEO? So should every manager be focused on developing all five of these? I think they're like muscles that you should work on. Like if you do, if you are ambitious in your career and, you know, I came up with these five, I didn't start out with any theories. It was just a pattern recognition exercise because I asked myself the question, what is it about these people that explains why they got to the corner office? And these were the themes that came up most consistently. So if you're aware of that, and just as people are going through their own careers, to think about the leaders and managers they work with, who they think are good or not good, and then ask themselves, well, why is that? What behaviors are they embodying? And again, I don't want to pretend I've cracked some secret code, Mm -hmm. but this is just the patterns that I recognize. And then you know, a lot of these things are like choices or, you know, in the same way you get up, you say, I'm going to start exercising more. It's just start applying yourself to some of these things. Well, how do you cultivate them? So how would you encourage, I guess the big picture question is, what do you think the best way, other than just direct experience of day to day, trying things out and seeing how things, you know, work out, 
what's the best way you've found and, and relative to the people that you've interviewed over the years, what's the best way they've found to really build themselves, to cultivate a greater understanding and to master those five traits you just listed? Yeah. And, and I guess recently I was challenging myself to answer the question, well, what is the one thing? All right. I came up with five things before. What is the one thing about all these people? And the best phrase I could come up with is slight tweak of the first one, but it's what I'm now calling applied curiosity, which again, it goes to that habit of mind, relentless questioning. But there's, I use the word applied because they're always sort of trying to build simple frameworks for understanding how the world around them works. And so if you have that skill, you can turn around and explain, you know, well, this is what's happening in this particular industry and here's why. And that applied curiosity is just if you're always trying to understand things and also apply that to human beings, because this is the skill I think a lot of people think business is about spreadsheets and analysis. And but at the end of the day, business is about people and having those people skills. And a lot of that just comes from being frankly selfless. And I don't mean that just in the sense of being charitable but selfless in the sense of where your focus of interest is, right? Are you interested in other people as opposed to wanting people to be interested in you? And there's this one framework, one CEO said, you know, some people are self-directed and others are other directed. And so it's just like be engaged in the world around you and it's not about you. And I think that'll ultimately help you because we all know those people who are super ambitious and you can just tell that, it's kind of all about them. Mm -hmm. And I think people who are selfless in the best in every sense of that word ultimately become the most successful leaders. Well, I mean, that's really off-putting to people and people can feel into that. And then they stop wanting to support that person and collaborate with them because they think they're just major takers, right? Right. It's, you know, there's an expression, it's the all about me show. Mm -hmm. You know, you can tell that with people. Are CEOs readers? Yeah, I think they have to be. Some people are readers of different things. And especially in this day and age, like is reading just about books or there's so much stuff online. And and to me, the, the, the more important time is time to reflect, right? Because CEOs have so much input. There's so much, there's a fire hose of input and you have to have time to process it. And it's very easy, not just if you're a CEO, but in our lives in general, it's very easy to become incredibly reactive because there's so many problems to address, fires to put out, but you have to go into life with like, these are the three things I'm going to focus on this quarter to move the needle. And that's not just for CEOs. I think that's just for anybody. Don't have more than three priorities and use those to start your day, not to do on the side. What about temperament? Were they all over the board in terms of temperament or did you find some yeah. consistency? Yeah, I mean, some people are like super energetic. Some people are quiet, introverts, extroverts and all that. And again, at the end of the day, they're just human beings. Most of them don't come close to fitting that stereotype of high school president who went to prestigious B school. You know, they've come from like they were teachers. They worked in theater, um, just really unusual backgrounds. And now they're running a big consumer packaged goods company. What and was the leap? How did they get, how do you make that leap? Like this is their life stories, right? And this is to me what was so fascinating. It's like 
somebody studied classical organ in college. And then when they were graduating, realized it was kind of hard to make a living playing classical organ. So they started selling classical organs to churches and then discovered they had a real knack for selling and that turned and now they're the CEO of a big company. <laughs> and they look back and you can tell they're genuinely surprised themselves to be a CEO now. Because I think sometimes a lot of people would say, I want to be a CEO someday. Well, why? Because like, well, I want to call all the shots. Well, when you're a CEO, you actually have more bosses. And so people have this kind of cartoonish notion of what a CEO is. But I think the best ones sounds counterintuitive, but they tend to just focus on doing their job well, whatever they're doing at the moment. And then somebody comes along and says, you did that really well. I'm going to give you more responsibility. And they that's how they move up. It's not that they're like super career climbers. I'm not naive. I'm, of course, there's politics. A lot of it is luck and timing and chemistry and all that other stuff. But it all starts with it's just like you have a job to do, do it well, people will notice you and they'll bet on you and give you more responsibility. You know, you talk to enough CEOs and a lot of them say, like, I haven't asked for a promotion in about 30 years, right? Just because people just keep saying, you're doing a great job, have some more. That's fantastic. As we close up here, I have uh, two final questions. So the first one is if you were able to give a speech to, an auditorium filled with people who are heading into their leadership careers. What have you come to believe matters most when it comes to excelling as a leader in the 21st century? The big question. Yeah, and I'll repeat what I said about applied curiosity. To me, that's the, the thing that separates people. The other advice I tend to give, and I'm borrowing this phrase I heard from one of the CEOs, and he tells graduating classes, play in traffic. And it's not parental advice you give to little kids, but what it means is just get out there and do stuff and meet people because so many people start their careers in their 20s. And in this day and age, it's super specific plans for your LinkedIn profile and Facebook. I want to have this title by this age, making this much money. That's not how life works. It's, you know, I always say like when you get older and you look back on your career, how it plays out actually has much more to do with the people you know and have met along the way and impressed and developed a relationship with than whatever plans you had. So just to be aware of that from the outset. Fantastic. And then finally, is there anything that I should have asked you or any final points you'd like our audience to hear before we go? I'll just finish with probably my favorite quote I heard from one of the CEOs. She was leader of a university and her basic point was always be prepared to learn the most important lesson of your life at any moment. And I just thought that's a great philosophy of life because if you literally go through your day thinking at any moment I could learn the most valuable lesson of my life, that means you're going to have your eyes and ears open. Did she have a specific moment in time or in other words, how often does this happen to people? Is this just one one major epiphany that happens and you have to be on the alert for it? Or are they breadcrumbs that she's saying you're picking up along the way? Insights about yourself and about what drives you and what you know limits you and your fears and hopes and all that. Is it all bundled in that or is it just one big picture? Well, I think it's all bundled in that. But just, you know, again, it's being open to the fact that you could learn a super important lesson. And, you know, over the course of your life, maybe you leave, you learn 100 important lessons or 50, whatever the number is, but just being open to the fact that you could learn it at any moment. Like you could just reading a book or having a conversation with somebody you met at a party. And again, that gets back to being 
interested, not trying to be interesting. If somebody says to you, I just read this incredible thing about neuroscience, about what really motivates people. You know, you say that to some people and they go, oh, that's interesting. And other people say, really, what are they? Like, what was the big insight? Mm -hmm. Uh, And to me, it's like, again, we all know people in each of those camps. So just being sort of excited about learning powerful lessons about life, not just things, to me is probably the best advice. Well, I wish we could continue this conversation over dinner 3,000 miles away, but I want to just say thank you. You are remarkably insightful and articulate and thoughtful and everything that I admire. And so thank you so very much for coming on the show, Adam. Before we end today, I want to thank my producer, Eric Oz, my site manager, Randy Yant, and my friend of friends, Ken Boynton, for all his incredible help on this podcast. And until next time, always remember, when you lead from the heart, your people will follow. This is Mark C. Crowley signing off for now, and thanks so much for joining us. Mm